Hi, everyone. This is Ed Chang. This week begins a special four-episode summer season that will focus on notable student scholarship in evidence law. The season is hosted by my colleague and former student, Alex Nunn, who is a visiting assistant professor at the University of Arkansas. Alex has been an invaluable behind-the-scenes contributor to the Excited Utterance podcast since its inception, and I'm delighted to welcome him as a guest host for the summer. I hope you'll enjoy hearing some fresh new ideas from these promising authors over the next month. Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast. Episode number 51, Mara Afzali, the race geste exceptions to the rule against hearsay. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your guest host, Alex Nunn, from the University of Arkansas School of Law. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Mara Afzali. Mara is a recent graduate of Albany Law School and is currently an associate at Bond, Schenick, and King. Our podcast today features Mara's new paper, Letting Sleeping Dogmas Lie, a response to Judge Posner's call to reform the race geste exceptions to the rule against hearsay. Mara's paper focuses on Federal Rule of Evidence 8031's exception for present sense impressions and Rule 8032's excited utterance exception, asking whether, in light of recent criticism from Judge Posner and other notable scholars, the rule should be reformed or abandoned. Fighting against current mainstream academic thought, Mara insists that Rule 8031 and Rule 8032 need not be amended or repealed. Instead, taking a refreshingly pragmatic approach to the issue, Mara notes that the bright-line rules advanced by the present sense impression and excited utterance exceptions have produced a workable body of evidence law that provides valuable predictability to practitioners. Our discussion today explores a number of proposals for reform regarding Rule 8031 and Rule 8032, before focusing in particular on her argument that these alternative paths forward should not be pursued. Mara, great to have you on the show. Great to be here, Alex. So I have to begin by noting that this is an exciting episode for us here at the podcast, because I believe it constitutes our very first opportunity to explore our namesake. Of course, I'm referring to the excited utterance exception to the hearsay rule. So I wanted to start out by asking you to give a bit of background on what caused you to gravitate to the excited utterance exception and other Rule 803 hearsay exceptions for your paper. Well, I'm very honored to be the first guest speaking about the excited utterance exception. Um, and what gravitated me towards this topic was in undergrad, I did a lot of moot court competitions. And so I had some experience with some of the hearsay rules and evidence law coming into law school. And when I was choosing my topic for my paper, it was when I was in the fall of my second year of law school. So I was also taking evidence law at the time and really connected well with that professor. So I went to talk to him about some ideas of what might be appropriate hot topic type items to discuss in evidence law. And this was one of the topics that we kind of talked about and discussed and 
I was immediately excited about the idea of looking into the reliability of excited utterances and what sort of supports that underlying belief that these statements have some sort of, you know, basis for reliability to be admitted as evidence. Great. Well, as you note in your paper, now retired Judge Posner has long voiced doubts about the psychological underpinnings of many of the exceptions to the hearsay rule, writing that some constitute examples of the, quote, folk psychology of evidence. And for Judge Posner, these concerns seemingly came to a head in his concurring opinion in United States v. Boyce. Tell us about that case. Sure. So Boyce dealt with a defendant who was convicted for being a felon in possession of a firearm. And at his trial, the prosecution offered into evidence a 911 telephone call made by the man's girlfriend who was at the scene and said that the man was running around with a gun and going crazy for no reason. And when the police arrived, they found that the girlfriend was, as they explained it, emotional as if she had just been in a fight or an argument. So later at the trial, the girlfriend refused to testify, and there was some belief that perhaps she had been intimidated into not testifying. So really, the 911 telephone call was all that the prosecution had to enter, and they did so successfully. It was admitted as both a present sense impression and an excited utterance, and it was played for the jury. Now, that decision was appealed. And it was affirmed. However, it was in that decision that Posner wrote a concurring opinion where he raised his sort of longstanding concerns about the lack of empirical research that there is to support two different notions. One, that immediacy sort of provides any real guarantee of truthfulness for a statement. And two, that a declarant who's speaking under the stress of a startling or traumatic event is any more likely to make an accurate or truthful statement. So while Some sociological research studies sort of support this idea that these statements may be more reliable. There's other research that's emerged that shows, in fact, just the opposite, that too much stress actually can have a negative impact on a person's ability to accurately perceive and then relay the information of what's going on around them. So in some ways, the takeaway seems to be that there's sort of this middle ground, perhaps where a person has to be upset enough that he or she can't or won't lie, but not so upset that the stress may impact the accuracy of their statement. So that was the concern that Posner brings up in his concurring opinion. And he uses that as an opportunity to voice his concerns and lay out what he believes is a better approach. So one of the fantastic parts about your paper is that it does a great job of surveying different proposals for reform in this area of the law. And I want to pick up where we just left off with the Posnerian position, because you gave us a great recap on what Judge Posner thinks about the psychological underpinnings of these hearsay rules. But what would he do to reform the exceptions? Posner advocates that the solution to this problem is that we should basically do a complete overhaul of the FRE's hearsay exceptions, which he believes are too sort of complex and archaic, as he puts it. So instead, Posner suggests that Rule 807, which is the residual or catch-all exception, should essentially, as he puts it, swallow much of Rules 801 through 806, which are where the exclusions and exceptions to the rule against hearsay are. And under this approach, a party offering the hearsay statement would, instead of meeting each element of the hearsay exceptions as they exist now, would just meet those 807 factors to admit the statement into evidence. And Mara, what are your thoughts on the Posnerian position? So what Posner's advocating for is essentially a complete erosion of a long-standing body of evidence law. In exchange, 
what we are left with is a system that relies predominantly on judicial discretion instead to decide which statements are deemed trustworthy. Uh, but what it doesn't leave us with is a real way to predict what a particular judge might admit into evidence at trial. And that could have a negative impact on a party's ability to weigh the strengths and weaknesses of their case before trial in order to make strategic decisions with regard to both their trial preparation, but also potential settlement decisions. And this is also an approach that's sort of in stark contrast to what Congress intended when they passed 807, which the evidence indicates there that they wanted it to be a very narrow exception. Now, the other issue that I have with Posner's suggestion is that reform on the federal level wouldn't change the state evidence laws, which many of which still have excited utterance exceptions. So therefore, litigants who are still in the habit of entering those excited utterances into trial on the state level would probably still do so on the federal level. So all that it would do is really shift where excited utterances come in and the avenue by which they do so from the 8032 rule to the 807 rule. Professor Alan Williams provided a second alternative, proposing that a witness need be unavailable before a hearsay statement could be admitted under either the excited utterance exception or another rule 803 hearsay exception. Tell us more about Williams's proposal and tell us your thoughts on that alternative. So what Williams suggests is instead of having the excited utterance exception, he proposes a new rule 804B7, which he entitles statements immediately subsequent to startling events or conditions. And it would essentially read as follows. A statement made immediately subsequent to a startling event or condition that is supported by corroborating evidence that clearly indicate its trustworthiness. And as you said, this would also be a rule, an exception that's only available when the witness is not available to testify at trial. And then he also goes on to list 13, what he calls truthfulness factors that would be what the judge would consider in admitting these evidence. And these factors are basically a hybrid of the factors that the advisory committee notes provide for rule 804B3 and the 807 truthfulness factors. And Mara, what do you think about Williams's proposal? So while his proposal is attractive as compared to Posner's because it does provide sort of a predictable avenue for admitting these statements, it sort of comes out with a different problem, which is that it's far too complicated. In terms of using this at trial, you can imagine a proponent getting up to offer the evidence and starting to list off these 13 factors as to why the statement should be admitted into evidence. And furthermore, with the unavailability factor, not only does that do little to actually increase the accuracy of the statement being offered, but if you imagine a situation like the one in Boyce where that 911 call was being admitted, you know, that excited utterance, it's often probative because of the very context in which it was stated. That impact on the jury of hearing that 911 call is very different than hearing the girlfriend, even were she to have been willing to testify, get up and just state the fact that the man had a gun at the scene. So that very force is part of what makes excited utterances useful to a litigant. In sum, it sort of seems like Williams's proposal creates more difficulties than it perhaps solves. Professor Lisa Richter at Oklahoma has offered yet another proposal for reform. Tell us about Richter's position. So Richter's suggestion, what I call in my paper a more modest approach, is that we expand the trustworthiness exceptions that exist now uh, under 803.6.7 and 8, and we apply it to 803.2, which would essentially allow a proponent to offer into evidence an excited utterance, as it is underneath the existing rule. And once they established the elements, then the other party could raise 
some issues around the trustworthiness of a particular statement. And then the burden, so to speak, would shift back to the proponent of the evidence in order to demonstrate why that evidence should be trusted to be admitted into evidence. And Mara, your thoughts on Richter's proposal? The pros, I would say, of Richter's proposal is that she acknowledges that a complete overhaul to the federal rules would have this overwhelming impact on predictability of trial outcomes and perhaps be more complicated than need be. However, Richter's proposition in some ways runs into the opposite problem, which is redundancy. Now, under the federal rules as they exist, there's already two mechanisms through which a judge can exercise discretion to exclude an excited utterance, even if it meets the initial elements as provided under the rule. The first avenue is through the language of the rule itself. Now, the language provided includes factors such as timeliness and stress and the startling nature of an incident. And all of those factors are already vague enough that they allow a judge discretion by which they can refuse to admit hearsay that they believe to be untrustworthy and therefore not competent, even despite the fact that it technically could be considered to meet the elements of the excited utterance exception. Now, the second mechanism is also Rule 403. And this special rule of relevancy essentially allows judges to exclude a hearsay statement, even if it qualifies, again, as an excited utterance, for almost any reason, if they conclude that it threatens to unfairly impact the outcome of the trial or mislead the jury in some way. And therefore, the application of a 403 analysis would essentially operate in almost the same way as Richter's suggestion. So, Mara, with all of these proposals swirling about, we arrive at last at the Afzalian position, if you will. Do you believe that the excited utterance exception and other Rule 803 hearsay exceptions are in dire need of reform? You know, Alex, my conclusion in my paper and what I'll advocate for is that despite some of the concerns that Posner suggests, at this point, there's just not enough conclusive empirical research to justify such an overhaul of the federal rules. And so my suggestion is that while there are some of these problems that have been raised, right now we continue to have a workable framework that governs the admission of trial evidence and that we should leave it alone. Jeremy Bentham famously stated that fiction is to law as swindling is to trade. And as more and more empirical studies cast doubt on the psychological underpinnings of many of the exceptions to the hearsay rule, their characterization as fiction seems to me to be somewhat fair, or at least they're at risk of being characterized as, as fiction. Yet you continue to believe that these exceptions have utility and should be preserved. Why is that? So as it is, the hearsay rules and their exceptions and exclusions, they aim to, in the end, allow only statements that we believe have some sort of independent reliability or guarantee of truthfulness to get to the jury. But no matter what body of law that we have and the rules that we use to do so, at some point, statements are going to get to the jury that may or may not be entirely reliable. So under any version of the rule or body of evidence law, we're going to at some point have to allow the jury to weigh that evidence. And that truthfulness will go to the weight that the jury gives it and not to the admissibility of the statement itself. I want to test the scope of that argument because it seems to me that one could argue that the deficiencies associated with all hearsay statements should simply cut against their weight and not their admissibility. And if that's the case, perhaps the hearsay exclusionary rule should be abolished in its entirety. How do you feel about that more extreme claim? Now, I think that approach may be just going too far. I think the 
the rule against hearsay as a general rule, it creates some sort of a gateway to what statements we allow to get to the jury. Now, again, although some unreliable statements are certainly going to get through that gateway, I think it does create a conversation in the trial and allow the arguments to be made as to why certain statements should or should not be given to the jury. So at some point, essentially, we have to trust that a trial judge is going to use their discretion on the threshold issue of admissibility, but then we will allow the jury to weigh the credibility of the admitted hearsay statement in light of the particular facts of the case. Final question, Mara. What's next for the literature? What type of paper would shed additional insight on this issue? Well, I think most certainly we need to have more empirical research into the excited utterance and present sense impressions themselves. Again, one of the arguments I make is that the evidence as it exists now, it just isn't conclusive enough to warrant an overhaul to the federal rules. Now, were more studies to come out that continue to support this notion that there's no reliability that can be tied to these statements, perhaps such reform would be warranted. I think the second area of research that can be developed is more creative ideas. Although I spend some time in my paper stating the ideas that have been presented and then sort of knocking down why I don't think that they should be accepted and why they might not work, that doesn't mean that more creative and interesting ideas might not be out there that could help deal with the very real concerns that Posner raises. Well, Mara, thanks for being the first to talk about the Excited Utterance exception on the Excited Utterance podcast. It was great having you on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Alex. Should Rule 8031 and Rule 8032 be amended, abandoned, or simply left alone? To my mind, responding to Mara's paper and the other proposals for reform discussed today requires that we first consider an essential predicate question. Why do we have the hearsay exclusionary rule at all? Any attempt to determine the normatively optimal path forward for the present sense impression and excited utterance exceptions without first making clear our thoughts regarding the purpose for the hearsay rule would be putting the cart before the horse. Indeed, one's thoughts about the future of Rule 8031 and Rule 8032 should depend entirely on what purpose one sees the hearsay rule as serving. For many scholars, including Mara, The hearsay rule is a rule driven by reliability concerns. That is, the overarching purpose of the hearsay rule is to increase decisional accuracy in the courtroom by preventing untested out-of-court statements from reaching the ears of the jury. If one adopts this viewpoint, perhaps Rule 8031 and Rule 8032 should stay put. After all, as Mara noted, the empirical literature has not conclusively proven that present sense impressions and excited utterances are unreliable, And, if we're operating in a world in which the hearsay rule is all about reliability, perhaps it is therefore appropriate to continue to allow the jury to hear this evidence. As Ronald Allen put it, the dogmatic slumber that the legal system ought to wake from is not these hundred-year-old folk psychology notions of hearsay exceptions that might be disproven by or disverified to some extent by some recent study. The dogmatic slumber is that you should stop treating jurors in such a patronizing way. That said, I think the analysis materially changes if one believes that a different rationale drives the hearsay rule. Rather than a rule primarily concerned with the reliability of evidence, the hearsay rule can instead be conceived as a rule centered on procedural justice. That is, we exclude hearsay from the courtroom not because we simply think the evidence to be unreliable, but instead because we think it unjust for a party to face hearsay 
without the opportunity to test a declarant in front of the jury. As Justin Severe puts it, quote, the hearsay rule promotes norms of procedural justice by disallowing evidence from accusers who will not, as the expression goes, look the accused in the eye. If one adopts this alternative perspective, Rule 803.1 and Rule 803.2 take on a significantly different status. Present sense impressions and excited utterances are not deemed admissible simply because they are reliable enough for a jury to consider, but instead because they are considered so reliable and accurate that we think it appropriate to introduce them into the courtroom even when an opposing party cannot test the declarant. We sacrifice traditional norms of procedural justice because we believe that present sense impressions and excited utterances are simply too probative to exclude. But if this is indeed the correct way to think about Rule 803.1 and Rule 803.2, the aforementioned problems associated with the psychological underpinnings of present sense impressions and excited utterances become notably more compelling. In effect, we are sacrificing a key component of procedural justice, a major legitimating component of adjudication, to admit evidence that, according to empirical studies, may or may not be all that reliable. To sacrifice procedural legitimacy for such questionable evidence seems, to me, an ill-advised trade. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. Excited Utterance is produced by Ed Chang, and the production editor is Grace DiPietro. Additional production assistance is provided by Aaron Parkeranza, and music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir, under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your guest host, Alex Nunn, and I hope you will join me again next week when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof.